Turning there, I want to make a brief statement about the book of Ruth and, and maybe kind of burst your bubble for a minute. The book of Ruth is not about Ruth, although she is one of the main characters. The book of Ruth is not about Malon or Kilion or Elimelech or Naomi. No, the book of Ruth is about the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And through this story, he shows that he is the God of all nations. And in this story, we see that he is in control of all of life's circumstances, even when life seems out of control. And his loving kindness is on full display throughout the pages. And like all books of the Bible, the book of Ruth points us to the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through these weeks ahead, that the book of Ruth is really about the Lord and about his son, Jesus. Well, let's read this book together, just the first seven verses today. First seven verses of Ruth chapter one. This is God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, we want you to speak to us now by the power of your spirit. We ask that you would speak through your word, that it wouldn't be my words that these people hear, but that would be your very words speaking to them. Holy Spirit, rebuke us, challenge us, encourage us, comfort us. We need your word, and we rely upon you to speak to us, so we ask for it in Christ's name, amen. Well, have you ever noticed that life in this fallen world often doesn't work according to our plans? Intuitively, I think we all know this, but when life happens, when the unexpected happens, when we experience the fallenness of this world, it's hard not to be caught off guard. I learned this some years ago, now many years ago, in my early 20s. I had just graduated college. I was a basketball player wanting to play professional basketball. I was newly married, and the future seemed pretty bright at that point in life. Well, fast forward three months and the unexpected happened. I was put into the hospital, but I was put into the mental health part of the hospital because of my erratic behavior. 
And some of the doctors at that moment were telling my new bride of three months that I might not have a good future, mentally speaking, for the rest of my life. All of a sudden, a life that seemed so promising now seemed uncertain. So that's a story from my life, and we'll revisit that one later. But what about you? How has life in a fallen world affected you? Maybe you find yourself this morning unemployed, and you don't know where the next paycheck is going to come. Maybe you unexpectedly find yourself single, and at this point in life, you thought you would be married. Maybe you are married, but you unexpectedly find yourself in a marriage that you never dreamed would happen in a negative way. Or maybe you have a family situation going on that you only imagined happened to other people, not people like you. Or maybe you're struggling with a sin that seems impossible to shake. Or maybe you're suffering silently, alone, not sure how you can share this burden with somebody else. Maybe this year you have experienced loss, loss of a life, of a child, of a spouse, of a friend, through death, through divorce, or through relational hurt. How do we deal with life in this fallen world when life happens? And where is God when life comes crashing down? Fortunately, these are the questions that are raised for us in the first seven verses of Ruth as we're thrust in the story of this one particular Israelite family during a very challenging time of Israel's history. And as we zero in on this one family, over the next many weeks, we'll pan out and see that not only is God in control of all of our lives' circumstances, but also that he's using those very circumstances to accomplish his purposes for the entire world. Well, if we're going to understand the book of Ruth, we need to understand the times in which they were written. So if you look there in verse 1, it says, this story took place when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled. With those seven words, it's as if the author is saying, please see the previous book, previous book of Judges, last 21 chapters. And in case you haven't read Judges recently, let me tell you, this was not the highlight of Israel's uh, history. And these 200 plus years were very challenging on many, many levels. It was a time of disobedience to God. Israel had failed to drive out the other nations as they had been commanded to do. It was a time of idolatry. They had somehow turned from the living God to these false gods, hoping they would provide some satisfaction. These gods of the nations they were supposed to drive out. It was also a time of self-reliance. So if you turn back one page, if you have your Bibles open, you can go to the end of Judges where we get this one concise statement of that entire period. It says there in verse 25 at the end of Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
this summary of the time of the judges reminds me what happens when you get young kids in a room without supervision and a lot of crayons and items that can get all over the place. Life becomes messy. And here in the time when Ruth happened, life was messy in Israel. And it's in this context, through the experience of this normal Israelite family, here in verses 1 to 7, that one overarching theme emerges. And it's this. When life seems hopeless, God alone can provide hope. When life seems hopeless, God alone can provide hope. And we see this theme breaking down in the first two sections there in the first seven verses. In verses 1 to 5, we see a life that seems hopeless. In verses 6 to 7, we see that the Lord provides hope. And it's from these two sections in this text that we notice two principles emerging regarding a life lived in a fallen world. And here they are. Principle number one. Life in a fallen world can seem empty and hopeless. And principle number two, the Lord gives hope to his people in all circumstances. Well, let's look at that first principle, that life in a fallen world can seem empty and hopeless. If you're familiar with the Bible, which I know many of you are, you'll realize that the the Bible does not hide the reality of life within its pages. The sins and the flaws of its character are on full display. Hard circumstances are not shied away from. Here in the Word of God, we see the full gamut of human emotion and experience. The Lord in his kindness does not gloss over the reality of life and all the challenges we face as human beings. And this is good because living in a fallen world with all the trials, with all the difficulties that we face can be extremely challenging. Well, let's look again at what was facing this family in Israel. Well, first, on a national scale, they were facing political instability. As I mentioned, it was the time of the judges, and that means their nation had rejected God as their king. They were in this downward spiral of disobedience, then punishment from God, then brief crying out to him, and then God delivering them briefly through judges, but then falling into greater disobedience and ultimately despair. And you see this spiral going down and down and down throughout the book of Judges. And because of the people's decision to forsake God, they were frequently subject to invasions from other nations. So on the national scale, we've got problems. On a regional scale, there were major economic troubles, and there was no work where this particular family lived. The text says that there was a famine in the land. In an agrarian society, as you know, this was a crisis, not unlike the great stock market crash of 1929 in our own country. Work was scarce. People didn't know how they were going to survive. And ironically, in Bethlehem, the city that means house of bread, there was no bread. We don't know if this famine was due to God's judgment or due to the invasions of all these nations that had come in and destroyed the land, or merely just because it was a time where God did not provide rain. Probably a little of all three. 
But whatever the case, Elimelech took his family. He uprooted them from everything they knew and sensed a need to move to this other country, to move far away and to find food. And so they picked up and they moved to a foreign land called Moab. Well, most of you will agree with me that when I say this statement, moving is hard and to be avoided at all costs whenever possible. Now, I know there's like one to two of you who just have this weird sensation and you love moving frequent times, but for the most of us, it's a real pain to move. I I remembered or was reminded of this this last weekend when I helped a friend of mine move. I think he was here in the last service. He was only moving a block away from where he moved, but even that was a major undertaking. Well, moving down the street is one thing, but if you've ever moved across the country, and especially if you've ever moved to another country, which I know some of you have, you know what kind of instability that brings. When you move to a new place, you don't know the norms and the customs of that place. You don't know what these people are like. You don't have a support network, and nobody really knows you, and you may not know the language. So here we learn that this man, Elimelech, who ironically, whose name means God is king, moves his family out of God's chosen land into the country of Moab, of all places, where the false god Shemosh was king, where they worshipped other gods and, and did despicable practices there. It's not like moving down the street. The Moabites were historical enemies of Israel. Somewhere in this period of history, Moab's king Eglon had defeated Israel and ruled them for 18 years. You can read about that in Judges chapter 3. No, they were not exactly moving into Mayberry. Well, the difficulties kept coming for this family. On a national scale, there is political instability. On a regional scale, there is economic trouble and crisis through famine. And on a personal level, because of these instabilities, the family had to move to a foreign land where they worshiped foreign gods. And the customs were very different. But at least they still had each other. That is, until tragedy struck the family. We see that the breadwinner and patriarch of the family, Elimelech, died. This left the family without its main provider. Perhaps in response, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, took wives from Moab. I just happened to be reading Deuteronomy 23 in my regular Bible reading this morning, and I came across the phrase where it said, No Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord up to ten generations. So these sons' decisions to take Moabite wives who worship foreign gods and who could potentially lead them astray was not an ideal choice, to put it mildly. Ruth and Orpah came to this Israelite family with vastly different worldviews and beliefs. Well, after 10 years, tragedy struck again. If you look at verse 5, we learn that both of the sons died. We don't know why or how, but we do know that Naomi is now left alone without any blood relatives in a foreign land, without anyone to provide for her, which in that society left her with very little hope moving forward. 
So what are we to make of this extreme hardship in this family's life? And by implication, what are you to make when difficult trials and hardships come upon you? Let me offer two suggestions for application. Well, first, you may need a new category for when bad things happen to you. When bad things happen to you, it doesn't always mean that God is punishing you. We know from later chapters of Ruth that Naomi interpreted her, her hardships as God dealing bitterly with her and bringing calamity upon her. And while that is the case, when we make poor, sinful decisions, there are consequences. Many times in this fallen world, bad things happen. Trials come to us just because we live in a fallen world. We need to resist thinking like Naomi, that life in a fallen world is going to work out the way we want it to work out. Because life in a fallen world will include hardships and difficulties. So first, we may need a new category for when bad things happen. Second, it's okay to admit when life is hard and that when you feel broken or when you are broken. This is an especially difficult thing for us who live in Wheaton, Illinois or the surrounding areas because we live in a culture of performance. We live a culture of success. We live in a culture of appearances. We may think that everyone around us has it all together. I can tell you as one of your pastors that everyone does not have it all together. And we are broken and we are in need of help, every single one of us on different levels. But how do we admit this brokenness in this culture in which we live? Well, first we admit it by admitting it to the Lord and bringing all of our emotions and our fears and our challenges to Him. But we also do this by sharing our needs with others. And so today, maybe after the service, you just need to go up to someone and ask them for help. Maybe they could pray for you. Maybe they could offer a resource for you in your time of need. The Lord doesn't want you to carry your burden alone. He has so designed this body of Christ so that we can care for one another in our time of need. But maybe today you're in a position where God wants you to help others who are in need. After the service, you might want to just say, how can I pray for you? to the person next to you. Or maybe the Lord's bringing to your mind, even right now, someone who needs your care and attention. Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians, when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And I wonder, Christian, if you're living in light of that reality. In part, that means we're called to help bear one another's burdens. So who might God be directing you to help in your time of need, even now. Well, thankfully, our passage doesn't end right there in verse 5. Originally, I was given the first five verses to preach on, and I was very thankful when I was given the next two verses. Because we see in the next verses this ray of hope in the midst of the dark clouds of life facing Naomi. We see the second principle of living life in a fallen world. 
that the Lord gives hope to his people in all circumstances. Now, Naomi thought she had hit rock bottom when her husband died, but she soon realized that the bottom was far deeper than she could ever imagine. And when her sons died, she finally did hit rock bottom. Maybe you can relate to Naomi. When you think life can't get any more difficult, it does. When you're wondering how to pay the bills, your car breaks down. When you're grieving the loss of a parent, your friend dies. When you're trying to figure out what's going on in your marriage and trying to heal it, your child goes wayward. It's in these dark periods when we can wonder, where is God and what is he doing? We'll look at verse 6. As Naomi was feeling this, notice what happens. When she was at her lowest point, her darkest point, God gave her a bright ray of hope. At the end of verse 6, we read that Naomi heard the Lord had visited his people back in Israel. She had reached a place of desperation. So when she heard this news, she was willing to get up and go immediately, even if shame would come upon her from going away full and coming coming back empty, as she puts it later on. She heard the Lord had visited his people, and she wanted to be where the Lord was. When Naomi heard the news, she didn't wait around in Moab. She acted. The text says that she arose, that she set out, and went on her way to return. Naomi knew this truth, that when you hear the good news of the Lord visiting his people, you must do everything in your power to draw near to him. Friends, Naomi's experience is but a faint echo of the loud shout from the Lord that was to come. Unknowingly, she was part of God's grand narrative that he was working through her seemingly insignificant family and through her very trials. Through her family, the Lord was preparing the family line from which the Savior of the entire world would come. At the time of Ruth, the Lord visited his people to provide perishable food for them. But now, in how much greater measure has the Lord visited us in the person of Jesus Christ to provide imperishable, eternal life for those who trust in him? Jesus visited us in this family's hometown of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago where he was born in a stable in a very insignificant way, not noticed by the world. Well, God showed that he was powerfully at work in Naomi's life, even when it seemed that life was hopeless. And now, today, God has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's able to provide hope and meaning for you in all of your life's circumstances. This is Amazing news. This is the greatest news because every single one of us were in far more desperation than Naomi. In our disobedience to him and on our own, we have no hope for redemption. We have no hope for acceptance before a holy God. And maybe you have come in this morning and life has beaten you down. You are in despair. 
you feel hopeless. Well, if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, I have some bad news for you. You are hopeless. The Bible says that you are living as an enemy of God and that the wages of your sin is death, eternal death. But in that hopeless news, there is hope because God has visited his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come to earth and lived a perfect life, a life you could never live, to die in your place, paying your penalty on the cross. And if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you can have this life. You can have hope. You can have joy. You can have life. So make this the day that you turn and trust in Jesus. Well, many of you do trust in Jesus. And you have been following him and still you're thinking, well, what does this passage say to me? Well, as followers of Christ, the application for you is very similar. We must continue looking to Jesus as we run this race of faith. And we must ask for his empowerment by the Holy Spirit. You'll remember in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. These people who have gone before us and have run this race of faith, looking to God as their hope, even when their circumstances were bleak, if not impossible. And as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we're reminded that it was for the joy set before him that he endured those horrible circumstances at the cross, despising its shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. So as you set out on this race of faith, perhaps for the first time this morning, or as you continue to run the race with perseverance, remember that the only way to have real hope in this life is by keeping your eyes on Jesus, looking to the joy set before you in Christ so that you might endure some of the circumstances that you're facing. Now, this doesn't mean that life is going to turn out perfectly for you or like you want it to. No, in fact, in this life, you will experience hardship, death, disease, and difficulty. The race of faith is not easy. It's a difficult one, but it is worth it because the prize is Jesus, and as you run that race, he will give you hope for the day. Well, perhaps you feel like you're in another category this morning. You say, yeah, Eric, I do know Jesus. I've trusted in him. I'm following him. But right now you're walking in sin, and you feel like God is punishing you for that sin, and you think you've fallen too far from his grace to be called back. As long as you have a pulse, as long as you are breathing, it's not too late. Make this the day where you confess your sins and turn from them and come back. Come back to him. Come back to his people here at College Church. We would love to have you here. Well, at the beginning, I mentioned this story of when I was in the hospital in my early 20s. I was eventually diagnosed with viral encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. And by God's grace, he restored my body and my mind a few months later. 
But I've met plenty of people who know and love God where that wasn't the case. Many times the sickness does not get better. The relationship doesn't get restored. The final financial situation isn't reversed for the better. And it's in the midst of the challenges and hardships of life that we've seen through the beginning of Ruth that there still is hope. It's okay to admit that you are broken. It's okay to admit that life is hard. But there is hope in the person of Jesus Christ. He has visited us. He has dwelt among us. And he died for us that we might have hope. This morning, I'm confident that he wants to give you a fresh vision for living a life of faith in this fallen world until this inheritance is yours. We've been given a down payment of the inheritance in the Holy Spirit. He's powerfully at work in your life, even when you don't see it. Even when it seems like life has come crashing down, that all your best laid plans are now laid bare and you don't feel a lot of hope. And he wants to use your life as part of his grand redemption plan for the entire world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you would give us eyes to see you afresh this morning in the midst of our trials, in the midst of difficulty. We affirm that you are a suffering Savior, acquainted with much grief, one who has compassion on us, who knows our frame, knows we are dust, who longs to give us help in our time of need. Oh, God of comfort, please bring us comfort by your spirit now. Please do a mighty work among us here at College Church that we might be able to feel a freedom to surface those needs and those brokenness, that brokenness within us when, when we sense it. We need you so desperately, Lord. So we ask that you would move among us in a powerful way. Amen.